I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and today is a phenomenal episode. I got to have a new friend called Dr. Nicole Prouse. She is an American neuroscientist researching human sexual behavior addiction and the physiology of our sexual response she's also the founder of a uh, an institute I guess you call it research institute here in Santa Monica California called Liberos or Liberos Um, really tremendous conversation we get into various different myths around the female orgasm some interesting new insights into aphrodisiacs and some of the deep nitty-gritty science around our sexuality excellent conversation here is a little clip so we're in the uh, what do we call this? this is the sex chamber or what is <laughs> <laughs> what is this the laboratory testing <laughs> space the laboratory Thank you so much for tuning in to the website. If you feel drawn, it is at aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find the five-day movement challenge where you can get started understanding how to integrate better movement into every aspect of your day. And you can also get yourself the show notes for this and the rest of these conversations. I have a quote coming from the book, The Prophet. Highly recommend you guys check that book out. Um, All you have shall someday be given. Therefore, give now that the season of giving be yours instead of your inheritors. That's pretty cool. All you have shall someday be given. Therefore, give now that the season of giving may be yours instead of your inheritors. We're all going to die, give ourselves freely while we're here as opposed to hoarding our crap and then eventually we are forced to give it away and then somebody else gets to rein in the joy of giving our crap away for us. Um, Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for reviews on iTunes. Anybody leaving a review, if we read your review on the show, we will send you out a box of goodies from on it. We've got a little review here from Mr. Paul Norton and five stars. This podcast delivers short and sweet. Uh, oh, <laughs> this podcast delivers is the subject. This podcast delivers exclamation point is the comment. Thank you so much, Sarah. Hit us up on Instagram and Align Podcast. And we'll shoot you out some on stuff. I think we're good to go. Get into this sexological conversation with Dr. Nicole Prowse. Thanks so much for listening and hope you guys enjoy. Chicka chicka boom. Align Podcast. We're in this. We're in the. Uh, what do we call this? Is the sex chamber or what is? <laughs> <laughs> What is this? <laughs> the laboratory, the testing the laboratory, space. The laboratory. The laboratory. It's not the, the spank tank. It could also be a spank tank. <laughs> what do you put on the door? Uh, we need to have some type we of We don't. We can't have people know that we're here uh, because of the controversy around what we do. So. Really? Yes. We're recording right now. This is the podcast. Oh, hello. It began. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the spank tank. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> what is the controversy? Uh, there are lots of folks who think sex should only occur in particular contexts. And so the things we study identify potential health benefits of non-married masturbation and uh, random partnered sex mm. and uh, vibratory stimulation. So things that are not sanctioned activities by many groups in the U.S. Mm. What the heck do we do here? What's, <laughs> what's, so what's happening? What's actually happening? <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at my 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 dials a little bit as we were going. Yeah. But yeah. Now I'm completely 100% <laughs> dropped in. Like, wait. Yeah. What did she just masturbation? What, I just yeah, I, I sparked Snap up. I was two. twisting the dial, and then you said masturbation, and I, I immediately came back. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so so what's like the easiest like thirty second to whatever uh, more My than elevator that pitch. elevator pitch of what the heck this place is all about? Yeah, we are trying to identify general health benefits of sexual stimulation. 
How was that for quick? That was quick. Right? Is that too quick? Is that premature? No, that was, that was that was a perfect usage of premature. <laughs> Is there, um, one of the things that I was curious with last time was like, uh, I asked like why it matters, you know, why invest all the time and energy mm-hmm. and money and everything into research in this realm. I think it matters because there are things that our body can do if we access these kind of sexual pleasures uh, or stimulation points that are currently unknown. Mm. That is, these questions just haven't been asked in a proper scientific way in the past. And, you know, lots of people obviously use these already. I like the example of sleep. So that is masturbating to help yourself fall asleep at night. Lots of people do it. No science to support that that happens. Kind of odd that that those two things aren't connected, but there's uh, many reasons why people, uh, for instance, pharmaceutical companies would not support or fund work that might take away from you know them being able to prescribe pills to help people sleep. Right. So if we can do things with their body naturally, you know, maybe we can do something that's safe, that doesn't have rebound effects from sleeping aids uh, or just any of the, you know, risk of side effects that come with those. Uh, or some of the frustration, like if it's a matter of like, I don't want to masturbate because I'm ashamed of it. And otherwise I can God's say, well, watching. I'm a doctor and I <laughs> prescribe you masturbation to help you sleep at night. And if that's what you need to engage and, you know, feel like that is an okay thing to do, then by God, let's get the science. Yeah. Let's do it. Isn't there, I thought that there's some degree of established, you know, neurotransmitters or hormones or oxytocins or what, what have you yeah. after having an orgasm that would lead to feelings, especially for men, men tend to have like the feeling of like, you know, withdrawal and like there's, there is <laughs> withdrawal in the sense of like, please don't touch me. I wish we could get Just, your face. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> very animate. But I mean, the, there is some degree of established, you know, this obviously has a hormonal impact immediately upon ejaculation orgasm. Uh, yes. Very poor basis. So, really. for example, the most cited study for those kind of effects are actually uh, masturbatory orgasms where they were sampling from cerebral spinal fluid. So there's a lot of question as to, like, does any of that oxytocin impact across blood-brain barrier? Is it really having a neural or a central brain effect? And that's not known because they didn't look for that. Mm. You can't when it's taken from the spinal fluid. And uh, some studies have shown fluctuations in like the dopamine binding and uh, PET scans uh, with orgasm, uh, but they don't separate orgasm from sexual arousal. So we don't actually know that the orgasm did anything special. It might just be people being in a high sexual arousal state. So there are little hints here and there like that, but it's, yeah, there's so few labs that study this kind of thing that the efforts we've made so far are minuscule and not um, well specified yet. So we're trying to parse some of that, um, do things that are more fine-grained and rule out some of the alternative explanations, but it's still very, very young science. Yeah. What is an orgasm? I don't know. Yeah, right. It's crazy. I thought I knew until like two years ago. What did you think you knew? Maybe we just stick with that. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So (laughs) there was a paper that's often cited as this is an orgasm for a physiologist, uh, which is 8 to 12 contractions that occur starting 0.8 seconds apart and increasing in latency until their termination. I was extremely turned on as you said. (laughs) So (laughs) it turns out like the orgasm is pretty reflexive in the sense that once it's triggered, however it is that it's triggered, we don't know, um, that these series of contractions occur in the vaginal and anal sphincters and it's hard. You don't terminate them mid orgasm. (laughs) Like once you've started this cascade, they're gone, you know? So, uh, that was what we used to consider uh, an orgasm. And then, we started doing some work where we actually had people in the lab and uh, they're supposed to press a button when their orgasm starts. And we're going to do that as a way of seeing, like, how does this person define their orgasm versus that person? You know, is everyone really tracking onto these contractions or not? And a bunch of people didn't have any contractions at all when they pressed the button. Mm. They were like, crap. So they've just been like fooling themselves? Essentially. I mean, you could look at it that way is these uh, women uh, don't know what an orgasm is. Uh, The other possibility, (laughs) the nicer, more feminist possibility, (laughs) um, is that women have different types of orgasms. And so some are more uh, physically rooted and have these contractile properties and others are not. But then why the hell would that happen? Um, So I 
like the first interpretation more. I think our sex education is so poor that it's very likely most women don't know that typically contractions accompany orgasm. Mm. But it's also possible, you know, that the later is the case, and we just need to characterize what a brain-gasm looks like. Uh, yeah, it's all, it's all very magical. I've been curious with that before, is with, um, yeah, in, in having sex with somebody and, and being like, you know, I feel like I know what an orgasm feels mm -hmm. like, you know, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure you didn't have, and they're like, no, no, I promise. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. all right, that's, yes. so, <laughs> yeah. Is they that, may not just be lying to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I sh I'm divulging too much about my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is the challenge, of course, right? It's like, because uh, there's also the curse of, you know, the woman that thinks she is, and it's like, oh, yeah, I've got like five in a row, and I'm yeah. so orgasmic, and this, and then, so she's essentially giving those messages to her male partner, who may then go on to have another female partner and be like, why is this one taking so long? What's wrong with this one? Right. When, in fact, the first one wasn't actually having them. So, you know, it creates this kind of cascade of misinformation, potentially, that I think causes a lot of conflict, because <laughs> You know, the one partner is saying, like, why aren't you easy like the last one? Or, man, you know, you're so much better than the last one. Yeah. And, in fact, they're not comparing apples and apples. You know, it's apples and oranges. Mm. These are very different experiences, maybe, that the women are having. And, you know, good on them to whatever pleasure they're experiencing. But uh, it causes problems when people don't have any precision around that language. Is there any type of definitiv definitive category of orgasms? That one could like, w you said like braingasm as a joke, but is there any kind of, is, is, is orgasm is orgasm is orgasm, or is there some type of like classification that we can just make up right now? <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, people have talked about vaginal versus clitoral orgasms, for example. Sure. Um, there's no good evidence separating them, uh, that's never been shown. We haven't looked super hard because there's not really even really physiology to look at, like all that stuff's connected. Um, so I, I don't know where I would look to say, oh, that happened in the vagina, but not in the clitoris. I was like, the structures are all tied together. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. um, so that's pretty mythical at this point, I think. There are groups like there's a lab in McGill in Canada that does a lot of work around the experience of orgasm. So like, is it more or less intense? Is it um, seem longer or more uh, inward versus outward and they ask about vocalizations and that kind of thing but that assumes people can report accurately yeah. and have some sense so definitely people ha experience orgasms is very different right and can classify them differently for themselves but the question of can we really find physiology that clearly differentiates orgasm types there's no evidence for it. I mean, there just aren't labs doing this kind of work right now. And, you know, we were prohibited from doing it uh, at one of two universities we tried to do that study at. Uh, one of them told us just, you can't do that here for no reason. Other <laughs> than just it was, uh, uh, you know, some type of concern about the image that that would pr uh, project on the school. Yeah. So uh, it's a very hard area to get information about. And that people are reporting all these kinds of experiences, but I don't know how that translates to physiology or if it even would. I'm not sure where to look for some of the ex things people are reporting. Yeah, so we are here in Santa Monica, and it's got a really beautiful view, actually. Normally, the view is disclosed or covered because the blackout <laughs> curtains and the... Yes, the, the nature the of the piece is such yeah, that. The happenings of here. So <laughs> can you kind of like paint a picture of what what a day here looks like maybe like more of the more of the, the the more active parts of the day sure active in quotations that was today <laughs> so we you could feel it uh, yeah <laughs> still the scent in the air <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> so like today um our la our uh, space is structured like any traditional psychophys lab which is we have an internal space so that no one can walk in uh, on the folks that are testing we had a what is testing? So the couple we had in today, we're testing the health effects of orgasmic meditation, which is a structured practice that people engage in where uh, they have a procedure for kind of grounding with each other. Usually it's heterosexual, but it can be two women as well. In this case, the um, there's manual genital stimulation. That means hands on the vulva for 15 minutes where they're stroking beside the clitoris. Uh, they have a whole practice around that to kind of like grounding and consent and safety procedures and all that. 
Um, they do it on the ground, so <laughs> we have uh, yoga mats behind you for that purpose, and um, their own set of pillows and things so that they uh, let their legs rest apart uh, to do that. And we test them before. We have them do their thing together by themselves in private with no video cameras while we monitor the biosignals from next door with the door closed. Mm. And then we test them again and see kind of how their responses have changed and try and relate that to what happened while they were in here. So it's the before-after data that is really valuable to you, just seeing the, the effect of that. Yeah, so those are called within-subject controls. So uh, they're in science you can do between subjects, so that would be like having couples in and then just having them like sit and stare at each other for 15 minutes <laughs> instead of touching each other right. or maybe you know like putting their hand on their shoulder uh, and we could have done that as well but for a variety of reasons we chose to do within subject control that mm -hmm. is you have everyone do the ohm procedure but then you try and relate stuff that happened during that time to the pre-post hmm. and ohming there's a specific quadrant of the clit or yes as well Are you familiar I with some of the specific practices of that yeah so they do upper left quadrant and uh physiologically speaking there's not a great reason to do that mm. but i'm happy that they've standardized it because it's one less thing i have to worry about yeah, <laughs> so, right. uh you know i don't have to think like you know if someone says clitoral stimulation i was like okay clitoral glands clitoral shafts retracted not retracted what's the size like there are a lot of issues if you just even just saying man like hand on the clitoris. I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And so they've really taken a lot of the work out of that for us and standardized it by picking a spot. Right. <laughs> and then, w what kind of information do you are you able to extract from that experience and from? Yeah, we're looking at two main things. So one is just like what happens when they're actually doing that procedure together. So we get brainwave data from both of them, which is the first time that's ever been done. And then we also get some peripheral physiology from the person being stimulated. So things like uh, micro sweat or galvanic skin response, uh, cardiovascular response um, from her and try and relate all of these things. So we can say, oh, you know, when you're in here that it looks very meditative, maybe. You know, maybe alpha and theta bands are high in both of their brain waves. And then we could look at how these two interact. Like, what are they doing uh, to promote some synchrony between them, hmm. um, if anything? So, like, one of the things we're really interested in, because we have a little hint of an effect here, is uh, if the person who is doing the stimulation is an anxious guy in general, or gal, <laughs> and mostly guys, uh, or they have anxiety when they walk in, it looks like they're really able to transmit that to their partner through their touch despite not having any communication about it verbally, mm. which is really interesting, right? So we may have this personal experience of like, if the person is not into it, then we can't get into it. Well, what's that about? You know, why, why does the partner have to be into it if they're doing the same damn thing that yeah. you know they're uh, doing when they're, they are? Uh, and yet, somehow that information is getting transmitted. So that's kind of an interesting uh, question scientifically is like, how did that happen? And mm. how strong is that effect? Uh, but more interesting to us is the pre-post. So we, the kinds of things we test people on are like their emotional reactivity of their brain to things that vary. So some that are like terribly, you know, gross mutilated bodies, others that are erotica, erotic images, um, some that are pleasant, but non-sexual. So like bunnies, babies, that kind of crap. <laughs> uh, and then we have them do this procedure and have them do that again and see normally you've seen these images already so your brain should respond a little less but what if it doesn't what if it goes the other direction and we can show that being in a sexually aroused state facilitates you know rewarding stimuli that are not necessarily sexual mm. so makes you look less depressed you know these are really classic uh kind of brain tests for depression as well, so we try and use really standard basic neuroscience tasks and cognitive tasks to then link them to science that otherwise may sound a little weird, you know, <laughs> like these are bizarre protocols, but they have a really strong basis so that when the study is over, we can say, look, you know, this is very accepted index. This is the kind of shift that yeah. we saw. What about your brain on porn and all that? There's like, you know, oh. pretty, so what are your <laughs> thoughts? I, I, I kind of have a sense of your thoughts right from talking last time, but is there what kind of identifiable separation is there between having a live <laughs> life Human. partner? That sounds yeah. <laughs> sounds so creepy <laughs> saying it like that. <laughs> Sorry. <partner. Yeah. laughs> we do not do that right. study here. Just not right. yet. So having a human being <laughs> versus a digital 
digital screen. Is there yeah. any kind of separation? Yeah, well, then there's also in between. What about your hand? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what we think so far is uh, there's a separation between early arousal stages. So like when you first turn on a vibrator, you first start looking at porn, that your brain looks very different than it does when you actually start to get into very high arousal stages where you might approach orgasm. So mm. uh, if I turn on porn or show you show you porn, turn on vibrator, <laughs> then we see uh, effort for really strong engagement of the brain and other systems in the body. So essentially, you know, like you're trying to get aroused, you know, you're really trying to engage with the stimulus and to mm. get yourself excited. And then when you shift into these later stages, it looks like you really have to release or kind of reduce your cognitive control, or, um, you know, not try and control the experience so much. And to the extent that is more the process with a partner, that is, you know, we initially may monitor a partner and be like, do they, do they think I look fat? You know, <laughs> do they right. like me? Do they, uh, at some point it shifts into, this is just good now. You know, we're in that uh, lovely space that is uh, kind of indulging and just uh, sensory experience. And that those I think are probably very separable. So, you know, the idea that porn is somehow going to affect or ruin uh, that latter experience, I don't think the two are really comparable. They're, they seem to be really different phases of the sexual response. So I don't have the concerns that a lot of folks have about, um, you know, the idea that you're going to watch porn and somehow ruin your body yeah. or do something like that. But it may be good to engage. Say again, which phases aren't comparable between? So I think those early arousal versus later arousal phases. Okay. So in the past, uh, a lot of models make the distinction between sex drive, sexual arousal, orgasm, resolution. Mm. Like this is a classic Masters and Johnson or uh, Helen Singer Kaplan. If you've taken human sexuality in undergrad, you probably had those models presented to you. They're very popular, uh, but they're not good data supporting them. Mm. So uh, part of what we question is, you know, the very basis of, is that really a good way to divide up the sexual response? You know, or I think we may be missing a phase. That is, there's a shift that happens somewhere between, like, I'm starting to get aroused and I'm, like, having to effortfully get myself there versus, okay, you know, that system is now online, whatever that threshold is, and I can now shift into something that's uh, allowing me to kind of be more meditative or... I hesitate to use the word trancy because there's not as good evidence for that, <laughs> but to some extent, uh, more entrainment where your uh, brain is really starting to approach something that might trigger the orgasm, whatever that trigger is. Mm. And then with men, men seem to be more sensitive to like visual and sound and all that. So it seems like porn is kind of not for every man or every woman because there's no mm -hmm. such thing as that, but it seems like as a stereotype, porn's kind of more built for men or is that bullshit uh well so if you're talking about visual stimulation versus porn in general so uh if you control for sex drive level men and women look the same hmm. so you take a high drive woman a lower drive guy on average uh there's no such thing as like oh men are more visual they're not more visual they just in general have higher drive so they respond more to uh everything yeah right. <laughs> okay <laughs> on average <laughs> So uh, I, I hate that myth, yeah, that guys are more visual. I don't think that's true. Mm. Um, but the idea, like, is porn targeted? Yes. I think the consumers are overwhelmingly male. Yeah. Uh, there have been some interesting studies about content related to that. So, for example, violence is equally enacted against uh, men as against women in pornography, which a lot of people assume it's really one-sided, but turns out some of the guys like that kind of thing, so <laughs> there's mm. that content. Uh, but one thing that is very strongly skewed is the objectification. And what I mean by objectification is like the uh, use of the body for the other person's pleasure kind of without consideration yeah, for right. what they might prefer. And that is clearly male-dominated. So uh, it's unusual to see a portrayal of like females using the male body uh, without consideration for his pleasure. Mm. I wonder if there's any, uh, if that has any impact culturally, because a lot of women get turned on by the feeling of being objectified. Yeah, you know, there's a funny interaction. I, there was this great paper that came out last year that we love to bring up because it's exactly women like to be objectified by valued partners. Yeah, right. That. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like create a safe container for me yeah. to turn me into. And then I, I actually trust that you're object. not really thinking about that. 
so go for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, what is that? Do you think there is some type of deeper evolutionary something or is that like something we learned from oh. porn or modern culture or is that like Napoleon or what was I don't I don't see a direct porn link there because I think it's just a general safety thing right like if you're objectifying a female and there's a rape risk there because I don't know you you know I'm walking down the street and your cat calling me I'm like I don't know if you're doing that because you're funny and this is the way you joke around or you're showing dominance and right. if you had a chance you'd attack me so, you know, I can't discriminate because I don't know who you are. But if I know you and it's like, this person is not going to attack me, <laughs> this yeah. is very safe. Uh, they actually do value my pleasure and all of that. Uh, this is the thing we play at and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, then I think the context is just very different. And I don't think porn has changed that. Um, so, yeah, but I love that finding. That's a hilarious study and made you know, a lot of intuitive sense, which is yeah. always nice. If, if sex, is there a separation between sex and masturbation? as far as from like a EEG or any of like the findings that you're looking at, or is it pretty analogous? I don't know. We've never done the direct comparison. Oh so man. I know we have, <laughs> we have the first data that I know of recording oral sex to orgasm with EEG uh, that's ever been recorded. Uh, but we have very little in terms of partnered sexual interaction outside of that genital stroking study we're doing. So like trying, we could try and get people with like penetrative sex. It's possible. Let's do it. <laughs> right <now>. I'm here. <laughs> it's for science. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I mean, these are great questions. And the thing that strikes me about it is just, you know, a lot of scientists are chicken shit, you know, that is, oh, we can't do that. Well, why not? Well, our ethics board would never allow us. Did you ask? Yeah, right. You know, if we all start asking and show that there's a path forward, that it makes sense to do this scientifically, then we could ask the damn question. But right now it's like, I understand, you know, there's a lot of like um, constraints and concerns about how do we control that? How do we make sure partners are consenting uh, and then control the nature of the sexual interaction so that I can say anything about it? Because I really need to know what the behaviors are, but I also am never going to be allowed to put a camera in the room. So like one of the things we played with was, uh, if you've ever seen the Microsoft Connect, so no stock here, but it's a, they uh, are, have worked on technology that allows you to track a human movement um, without putting you know, markers on the body of the human. Oh, yeah. So we tried to do this with two uh, people where we were like moving around the room, just simulating sexual positions to see if this thing could like model us. And it turned to shit like it couldn't differentiate us at all um you know ended up like collapsing the bodies into each other so uh, i do think there's a technology gap there that uh you know may, we could probably get this with thermography a little bit better but if i want to study sex in the lab i need some way of characterizing what's going on that is if i can't constrain them as well as i can for genital stroking then you know, how can I do that? So we've talked to people who uh, create pornography and said, you know, are there opportunities where you may be filming and we can get your brainwaves at one point and, you know, when the cameras don't care or you're simulating or you know, something right. uh, at different point. And, you know, they're, they've been open to those kind of things, but we haven't uh, gone through with that yet. So we're definitely thinking about, like, how do we start to try and capture more complex behaviors? But it's definitely a technology challenge. Yeah, it's amazing how how amazing of a tool science is and then also how limited it is at the same time because you get that that flashlight of that very specific specific circumstance mm -hmm. and that age range of people and that this was porn which is probably way different than two people being like deeply in love yep. with each other yep. you know and then we get this data and then we kind of regurgitate that data over and over again until enough times that are like okay this is just fact mm -hmm. you know but meanwhile the the core oftentimes i think is kind of like very specific yeah you know? the question of generalizability is huge here and we are under uh you know no delusions that we generalize directly to your bedroom right but regardless of how many times we try and tell folks that 
<laughs> they tend to take it uh, too seriously sometimes. Um, but we are like one of the interesting things with our genital stroking study. These people aren't romantic partners necessarily. And so we've ended up with about half that are partners, uh, like in real life romance, and then others that are, uh, they just do this practice together. Right. So we're going to be able to look a little bit at that question that is, uh, does it matter if they're in a romantic relationship and the quality of that relationship because we take measures of that as well uh or is it good enough to just be buddies yeah. and that you still get the benefits of genital S stimulation just being buddies super buddies super buddies yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, i may see really if i can work that into the paper <laughs> this category known as super buddies so if if <laughs> So for the, the sake of this conversation, we're talking about orgasmic meditation or partner stimulation or masturbation. What it would be like? Yeah, all the, the partner stuff I'm talking about, it is orgasmic meditation. Um, we don't have a sense yet of how important all the stuff they do in addition to the genital stimulation is important or not. Okay. So it, at the very least, at its core, it's genital stimulation, and then it might be some other stuff too. For men as well? They don't do the procedure for men. They just so do it for here women. in this lab, this is clitoral stimulation is what we're looking at. Yes. Okay. I want to take a quick moment and thank our sponsor, Health IQ, for supporting this podcast. Health IQ is a life insurance company, not just any life insurance company. They focus their efforts towards people that are living healthy lifestyles. If you are a runner, or cyclist, weightlifter, or just generally paying attention to the quality of food that you're eating, you should not be paying the same rate for life insurance. So you can jump on to Health IQ, like the letters IQ.com slash align to support the show and see if you qualify for one of their plans. They are one of the fastest growing life insurance companies with over $5 billion in coverage and they save their customers up to 33% on their plans. As I mentioned, the reason they can do this is because they take into account the quality of life that you lead. If you're investing in your health, you should be acknowledged for that in your life insurance policy. It's exactly what Health IQ does for you. So see if you qualify, jump on to healthiq.com slash align. Health IQ is in the letters IQ.com slash line. Here we go. Back to the show. I would love to do guys at some point, but I'm not sure how that would happen because the uh, prostitution laws in the U.S. are such that as soon as you start uh, approaching something that has a higher risk of uh, sexual satiation, so <laughs> shall we say, mm. so approaching orgasm, uh, I think we're going to start to come into more combat uh, with kind of that uh distinction where you know is what you're doing if you're paying participants to be in a study and the males are being stimulated and there's a higher risk of them having an orgasm are we now providing prostitution or are we doing something to promote that crazy yeah well oh my God. <laughs> we have to think about it i moved to amsterdam or <laughs> yeah so. that's crazy yeah, but you got to think about these things, right? I don't want to go to jail. Uh, and it's 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 funny. I mean, that's so they say that's like the oldest the oldest profession, and <laughs> and it's 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 really interesting yeah. when you go to a place where that's it's not frowned upon the way that the way that it is here. It's not like it like exists more or less or anything. It's just it seems like it's just healthier. Like the approach to it in general, you know, they're, we're able to control it. Whereas here, it's like it's not like it's not happening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really I don't know. It's not. It's just. Yeah, it's just a shame that's the way it is. It's funny. There are lots of battles right now politically in Los Angeles because it's such a common place to film erotica uh, around, you know, it, um, legislating condom use and pornography and uh, trying to impact their practices with OSHA. So the group that regulates uh, safety practices in general in the workplace. And it's funny because a lot of the rules, you know, they're trying to uh, force on these groups that don't want to be uh, many of them would say they don't want that protection They want to be able to decide for themselves. Yeah, right. They uh, Say well, you can put those on us. We just will disappear <laughs> We just won't apply for permits and we'll do it anyway yeah. so it's uh, Kind of a good direct modern example of exactly pushing it underground and becoming less safe that way so if if general stimulation were a supplement like sold in a bottle what would the the label say like what like what, <laughs> what like, could it do for yeah, you yeah what, what is <laughs> we're doing a commercial for general stimulation oh that's a good one actually that's a uh, 
figure a bottle label for this. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so there are studies that have linked like frequency of sex with general life satisfaction. So that may not be surprising. So increase your satisfaction with your life. Yeah. Um, greater uh, scores on verbal memory tests. So uh, people who have more frequent sex seem to do better on verbal memory tests for some reason. Mm. Uh, across age ranges, pretty good age range there. Um, what do you think that's a correlate to? Is there like maybe like a hormonal, like testosterone thing or something? Or It's possible that they are just more healthy in general. And because they are you know, active and they're reasonably trim or whatever it is that allows them to still have good blood flow to their genitals, that they're still able to engage in sex, is just a marker of general good health. Mm. And so this verbal memory is another manifestation of that. So this is an older person who, you know, is still probably active and still sexually active and still doing their word puzzles and, you know, things that kind of help keep their, uh, their mind active. So it might not be due to the sex itself, right? It's just an association. Um, and that's part of what we really want to do with our work is a lot of the uh, positive things that have been attributed to sex could be real. You know, those are definitely associations, but, you have to do a lab study to show cause. <coughs> right. You know, you can't uh, just rely on correlations all the time. That is the main distinction between doing survey work and doing lab work. Mm. Is there any other causes that you're seeing? Or causation, I should say, I guess? Uh, there again, so, like, there are studies that have tried to link masturbation with, uh, you know, reduced risk of cancer uh, for the prostate. Um, the studies are somewhat mixed, but they, my read is they generally are positive at this point. So masturbating more, at least to some point, seems to decrease prostate cancer risk. But again, those aren't good longitudinal or experimental studies because, you know, prostate cancer risk is relatively low incident. So you can't really like follow enough guys on an assigned masturbation task. You know, you must masturbate five times a week right. uh, for the next 20 years yeah. <laughs> so that we can see the outcome. You know, those are impossible to do. Hmm. So, uh, and there's at least one other lab in the Netherlands that tried to do that, have guys abstain for a period, um, but they incentivized them accurately reporting when they came back in. And like all these guys failed. <laughs> None of them were able to abstain for like two weeks. It was hmm. hysterical. I was talking to the guy who did the study and he was like, I freaking hate these. Really? <laughs> it's like they just wouldn't. Uh, he was like, I'm glad we freaking asked because none of them did the protocol. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, like, even that work where they try to do something experimentally to manipulate this, they there are lots of barriers, again, and I don't think we have great evidence that a lot of these are really causally linked. And it sucks because they really should be, and the evidence should be easy to get. But to have funding to do that... Not here, not yeah. in the states. What are you What are you hoping to get out of this? And then what's like the two year plan or five year vision or whatever? I got timeline? a ten year man. Yeah, what's your ten year? <laughs> what are you thinking? Uh, so this really is a recent shift for me too. I think a lot of sex researchers, myself included, originally thought of us ourselves as enhancing sex. You know, so oh, women deserve pleasure, and we're going to fight for women's pleasure. And um, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation, and we should get correct genital information and that stuff is true but it's way less interesting to me now so a white person problems last time first world problems first world problems right? yeah, yeah. Right. so i would say you don't care if you can have an orgasm if you can't feed your kids yeah. so part of what i'm thinking 10 years is you know how can we use this type of stimulation that is natural that is endogenous that is cheap <laughs> to do things that can get us off of medications or that can treat problems that we already have um, that maybe, you know, if you don't have access to a physician, I can't get in and get the antidepressants or get the new prescription for, you know, the third antidepressant that hopefully has less nasty side effects. But I'm really struggling with depression and I can't work regularly because I can't get out of bed. And, you know, th these are real problems. And if I can do something, you know, to use sexual stimulation, say, okay, you know, to like you were describing earlier, the orgasm and like sometimes being wiped out afterwards and having no motivation. Uh, but there's also these effects of, you know, it refocuses your attention. It kind of, if you're ruminating and have these uh, terrible concerns, one of the things we study is depressive rumination mm. before and after sexual stimulation. So could I, by this type of stimulation, uh, decrease your rumination around depression so, and use it in a way that can get you out of bed, that can be enough to kind of get you started at least so that you don't have to 
wait until we figure out the healthcare debate so that you can go to a doctor, so that you can get your prescription, so that you can get well enough to then try and find a mental health provider that's not already booked with, uh, you know, the only one in the area that takes Medicare. These things are crazy here, right? Yeah. They're workarounds, I think. And we could be using this to do some of that work, but there is not a great financial push to do that. So uh, if we can identify the patterns, like what does that look like? I don't think I feel comfortable saying, oh, if you're depressed, just you know, rub one out every morning at nine. Yeah, right. <laughs> like we're not there. Uh, that is not something that is good, uh, good science. Same thing with the masturbation and sleep. I don't really know how to use that right now. I have a good sense of why that should work. Why? Uh, so one of the things that increases when you become very sexually aroused is vasopressin that has been strongly linked to uh, somnolence or sleep. So if you inject rats with vasopressin, they start yawning like crazy. It's very cute. Mm. Uh, and then they ask for a sandwich. Yeah, right. I know, the fe- I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the one. <laughs> so uh, the question is, like, what is the characteristic of vasopressin when you're sexually aroused? Like, does it really spike at orgasm? Is it necessary to have an orgasm? Uh, is it better to masturbate when you're already in bed, like, ready to sleep? Is it better to do it 30 minutes before you lay down to try to sleep? And we need to know what the characteristics of that curve are to be able to recommend that in any real way. Because hmm. if I just say, like, oh, masturbation helps sleep, it's like, uh, Okay, maybe, but how? Like, how do you expect me to use this? What is the um, the time course? So, like, we know this now with more uh, melatonin, right, that people try and use to help take it at the right time before their flight so that they sleep exactly, and then when they land, you know, they're awake and can operate. We should be able to do that with sex, too, mm. and uh, in a way that you then don't need the pill and, you know, just be quiet in the restroom. How has this affected your own sexuality? Are you like <laughs> totally tired of sex at this point? <laughs> Please, God, go. Uh, I so I don't generally talk about my personal sexuality, but I can say in general, um, it definitely has been some funny dating stories because the I think the perception is very much like sex work uh, when folks don't know or understand really what I do, and that is. If you're meeting someone and you're trying to explain your job, you know, all they hear is like, oh, you watch people have sex. It's like, I don't watch people have sex. Right. I mean, okay, I got right. it. But from the other room and in a very sciencey way. Right. You know? so, um, so, yeah, more than anything, it's caused like communication problems of that's not what I do. That's also not what I do. And by the way, you know, I'm going to be quoted sometimes talking about penis size, and that doesn't mean I'm thinking about yours. <laughs> you know? um, that these things can cause complications in that way for sure. What would you be quoted in reference to penis size? Uh, so we had a study two years ago now where we gave women 3D printed penises that varied in their girth and length and had them select their preferred size for a variety of different situations. And so now I find out uh, I'm being quoted in Vice talking about husband dick, which is... Husband dick. Yes. <laughs> which is the idea that uh, when women do prefer slightly larger than average male sizes for the U.S., uh, but not grossly so. It's actually pretty close to the average. Uh, but they prefer sizes that are even closer to average if you ask them about a long-term partner versus a one-time partner. Mm, so the one time is for fun, but I want to deal with that every day. Right. What is average? <laughs> is it like five and a half inches or something, uh, something less around, than what I had yeah, anticipated? Yeah, and they vary a little bit depending on if the scientists let the men measure themselves or not. Right. And yeah. <laughs> right. But funny thing, <laughs> so good. we've actually never had a scientist measure an erection from sexual arousal. So the only time scientists have ever measured an erection is basically from Paprovin injections. So you inject the penis to um, force it to become hard. So this is not like Viagra. Uh, it really works totally in the periphery, in the penis itself. Mm. And so scientists have measured that in terms of, like, its width. So I'm always saying, like, we actually don't have a measure of a physician or scientist measuring the penis when it's erect from normal sexual arousal. Mm. That doesn't exist because it's just not considered appropriate for, like, the scientist to be in the room Crazy. with a natural erection. Wow. <laughs> a real wild erection. <laughs> <laughs> Totally, (laughs) we're completely (laughs) crazy. So, if you, if you, um, 
Have you looked into anything as far as like this is? I would imagine the probably answer is no. But anything as far as like effect of like nutrition or lifestyle choices outside of that in relation to orgasms? Is there any like what should we be eating throughout the day in order to have the best orgasm? That or is that like a non connection for you? I personally don't do that work in my lab, but there are others who have done some of those. There is a series of studies that have tried to look at yohimbine for Mm -hmm. facilitating female sexual response. There's some evidence supporting that. My read of it is it's pretty weak, um, but it is there. uh, And that is basically the only thing. (laughs) So uh, there was a series of studies that looked at over-the-counter erection aids. So those things you see at 7-Eleven when you're like, you know, uh, last all night with her, you know, X dick prize. Right. I love the X whatever. dick prize. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> these random packages. So some docs actually <laughs> tested the stuff and they're like, it's nothing. It's a big, big nothing burger. Um, mm. So there also aren't, uh, as far as we have, that is science, has ever looked like aphrodisiacs. Don't what? exist. What? Really? Really? Oh shit! But don't tell her because the placebo works. The placebo works. is still strong. I pers- I prefer. I know ne- you never even told me that. I'm gonna <laughs> 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 this didn't happen. So there's no such thing as aphrodisiacs. Come on. There's no evidence for that. Really? <laughs> I know. I'm such a killjoy. But well, I mean, I feel like an aphrodisiac in general is like joie de vivre. You know, so if you like mm-hmm. enjoy your chocolate or enjoy your oysters or like you're like yeah. feel like you're carping the diem. I feel like that in and of itself is probably an aphrodisiac. So Just being healthy. carping, yeah. Right. So <laughs> the placebo is a very strong thing. And so uh, in oh. general, there are good links, though, between cardiovascular health and uh, sexual functioning in men and women. So yeah. you can make a general case that anything you eat that's generally good for your body and your heart health uh, could be extrapolated over 20 years yeah <laughs> to be an aphrodisiac yeah that's i mean that's yeah I, i've said that i think on here people have said that but like uh, increase your libido is just like be a healthier human being i think that if you come to that point in yeah. your in yourself where you're like i feel like we should be procreating <laughs> it probably means like at least at like a cellular biological level like your your cells are like okay we, we can bring another one we're out healthy here. enough but if you're in more of like an emergency state it's like let's not think about you know, so I, I'd yeah. imagine anything that you do that was a, a healthy practice or makes you feel good would be. Yeah. I mean, there's some talk about the, like, if there's more of a relationship with obesity because, you know, pe- folks who are uh, struggle more in that area tend to report lower sex drive, for example. And people debate, is that something to do with the estrogenergic composition around fat cells? Um, because women tend to have higher uh, proportion of fat. What is it, like 15% more subcutaneous fat? Um which is what makes us soft, yay. Yeah. But they then if you have more of that, that might contribute to some climate in the body. And I've never, again, like there's no direct connection I've ever seen, but uh, folks who struggle in that area just report a series of health problems, including sexual problems. So difficult to know exactly where that's coming from. Could also just be body image, right? That I don't feel good about my body. So sex is not enjoyable for me. Yeah. How did you become so interested in, in all this? How could you not? What are you doing for your job? Why are you not doing this? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think it's, uh, right, it's a combo of, like, uh, nerdiness and idiocy. So <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of folks that are neuroscientists, they study depression or they study anxiety or like really basic cognitive processes of classifying chairs versus tables. How does our brain understand something to be a table versus a chair? Mm. These are important questions. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> Back to dick size, though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so I think it's really like... Uh, it's a fascinating area, but it's a really dumb area to go into because, you know, there's no funding. There's uh, a very real personal risk to it. You know, a lot of folks in this area get attacked. Um, mm. You know, we get threatened a lot. The By who? By, like, religious people? Mostly or religious organizations. So, Ugh. like, I uh, grew up training at the Kinsey Institute, and we still got bomb threats there. Um, and, yeah. Because <laughs> people are masturbating inside the place. <laughs> Well, so this is actually interesting side note. Um, there's the history of the Kinsey in part is when this 
his famous book came out talking about male sexual behavior, female sexual behaviors, uh, two separate like groundbreaking books, um, mainly just because they asked questions, not because they were like ground truth. But there was a table in one of them where he discussed uh, ejaculation latencies in boys. So like pre um, pre 18 and the religious right has used this for now almost 100 years. God, it's been around so long. That's exaggerating a little bit. But they say that the Kinsey test children, that we walk kids into the lab and, like, masturbate them off and time them and stuff. And, like, I was a lab coordinator there when I was an undergrad. I studied there all through grad school. I was in the lab every day. We don't test kids. Mm. Uh, So I know that that's false, and we all know that that's false. But, uh, you know, I just saw it pop up on another website last week. And, Mm. like, this kind of myth around... Like, it's not enough for us just to be studying the area. They need to make up some mythology about how we're abusing children or, um, you know, something else is going on. There must be more there. And so it's craziness around just how do you, like, you can't prove an all. Like, if something didn't happen, how do you prove something didn't happen? It's easier to show it did. Have you you seen, they used to, didn't they used to, like, doctors used to, like, jerk patients off for hysteria and things like that? Fascinating history, right? That's good history. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anything about that? We, we, somebody made a joke about it, like the last podcast we did, and I didn't. I forgot to ask more questions. But you, you, I'm sure that's like right up your alley. Yeah. So I uh, know some historians who've written about that kind of effect, and now there's a movie about it as well. Um, and I mean, this this kind of thing really happened. The mythology is that that's what genital vibrators grew out of was uh, male doctor's hands getting tired from trying to right. uh, stimulate their female patients and that this was soothing to the female patients to have this sexual experience. I have never seen any great detailed account to really understand more about like what was happening in the moment. Like what was the mythology in the doctor's office around like, oh, this and that symptom are amenable to this kind of a treatment. And you know, how did that happen? when they're not, you know, there's so many prohibitions at that time around uh, outside sexual activity um, from the context of marriage. Like, how did that even happen? Mm. How do you medicalize what is straight up sexual activity Uh, to call it something else? So, you know, we could partially be returning to some of that in the sense that you know, if our study shows that female genital stimulation helps improve these other cognitive and emotional responses, we, we may actually have some evidence mm. uh, to back up this age-old practice, not for hysteria any longer. But If you want new information, you need to go into old books. Right? That's the, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, we recycle. Yeah, good. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> uh, well, cool. Um, we should wrap up. But you, seriously, was there like a moment that you had decided, like what was kind of like the path of leading towards this as being the thing? What were you doing before this? Uh, I was thinking about being a computer scientist. I thought about being a sociologist. I thought about doing psychology. And then I said I was in a liberal arts school. And you have to take a lab credit, and oh my God, the Kinsey Institute offers lab credit. Hell yes, I'm doing that. Mm. And first thing I ever tested was um, my first semester there. We were looking at postmenopausal women recording their vaginal responses to older adult porn. I thought it was hysterical and awesome and mathy and nerdy, and turns out there was a lot of work left to do in that area. So what I really liked about it um, was, first of all, is like liberal arts education working. You know, it did exactly what it's supposed to do, exposed me to something I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, come across necessarily. <laughs> come across. And the puns are endless in this. I should get like a little bell or something every time a pun happens. <laughs> every time I do a sex podcast, it's just like, don't stop. Yeah, so I think it was a combination of just there's so many people that work in, you know, basic attentional processes or schizophrenia and these kind of major mental health disorders that a lot of this stuff is broadly known and they're just uh, trying to understand the smaller pieces of it. So there's, you know, not a lot of elbow room. Whereas with sexual stuff, uh, like this idea that we might be discovering a different sexual phase, what the hell? <laughs> like that doesn't happen in depression research. <laughs> this is not. Uh, there's so much wide open in this area that if you're willing to fight it, you know, if you will uh, take the slings and arrows and all the crap that comes with trying to do this kind of work, 
you can really find be the first. You can discover new things. And that's not true of most areas, I think, of neuroscience and psych. That is, a lot of things are pretty well characterized, with some notable exceptions. But um, this is an area that is particularly wide open because good scientists don't tend to do this kind of study. Uh, and that makes it really exciting because yeah. it's, you know, what do I want to discover today? Well, we've never studied sex. Maybe we should do that. What's something that, that I or a listener can take away that maybe like a misconception or is there maybe like a standard misconception that you get that you feel like you love popping around this? Uh, around studying sex? Yeah, I don't know. Is there just anything pops up that like, no, this is... I don't know, something biological, just anything that, that, that sticks out as something that's like most people are thinking this thing and that's total bullshit. <laughs> um, well, we hit a few with the, yeah, the male visualization thing and the female orgasm thing. Uh, I think in general with there's some biological essentialism that uh, might be helpful here. So like I get taken to task sometimes because they say, oh, well, you study genital response, so you think that's everything. And then you don't think bisexuals are real, or you don't think, I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> um, you know, this is one piece of the puzzle. And so we see people fetishize neuroscience research all the time. Right. That is, uh, if I have a pretty brain picture of it, then it's real. Oh. And if I just ask people, it's not real. Um, these are just different pieces of the same puzzle. So there is nothing that I can tell you with neuroscience that I couldn't uh, also design a nice behavioral uh, cognitive task to characterize, that I couldn't also design um, you know, something to look at the peripheral physiology to characterize as well. So uh, even though I'm a neuroscientist, I say don't fetishize the neuroscience. Like that is not... Right. You can't say neuroscience underlies this or explains that. It does nothing of the sort. It's one way of looking at a problem, and yeah. there are many, and we need all of those pieces to kind of come together to figure out the puzzles. So that's probably one. Like we, uh, many times I see, you know, if we publish something in the brain, it gets all this attention, and then we publish something that's way cooler, you know, <laughs> in some cool math model we did. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it? People don't see, like, this is where it is. This is the cool thing. There's this, something about seeing the brain and, like, th th that you're like, oh, that's Mecca. Yeah. You, know, you see, like, yeah. an image of it, and that's it's, like, real. red over here, blue mm -hmm. over here, and you're like, we finally got answers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to the root. I was like, brain is not root. Right. Like, there's stuff that comes from the periphery up to the brain that's filtered all kinds of different ways before the brain ever sees it. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, helping delegate, but it's not, you know, a deterministic thing operating by itself in the world. It's impacted by history and experience and uh, how hot it is. Yeah. <laughs> like what about actionable? And then we will really will wrap up with actionable information on uh, from what you've gathered here mm -hmm. that people can take into their relationships or take into their uh, own personal kind of yeah if, if if it's okay if maybe this is not a place of advice <laughs> <laughs> abandon <laughs> ship brainwaves yeah <laughs> uh i mean a common one is just slower so i think um in general with sexuality and sexual response people are like you know how can we do this faster how can we do it better i'm like what what are you talking about <laughs> like the, mm. the whole ride people <laughs> this is um you know the health benefits that we're studying the kind of things we characterize in the brain and the rest of the body they don't just happen at orgasm like there was a whole lead up to that of good stuff yeah so i would say don't skip the good stuff and mm. that doesn't just mean like Oh, take, you know, be sure you have foreplay, you know, who cares, whatever, <laughs> like foreplay might be, uh, oral sex foreplay, yeah. you know, these things can change that we have very, very strong sexual scripts. You know, if you ask people, you can get a pretty strong, you know, kissing to this, to that, to right. penetrative intercourse. It's the base system. Yeah. Got the second base. Yeah. It's great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the scoring is stupid. It's <laughs> ignorant. And. Uh, it's very, very strong, especially in the U.S., not just the U.S., but, uh, and I, that sucks <laughs> because it's, uh, I don't think there's any reason for it, and people get shamed a lot around breaking that script. So mm. if I do something out of order, I'm a weirdo or I'm a pervert. Uh, just based on that, I was like, you should see some of the stuff we have seen. <laughs> like, right. This is not, not something you get upset about. So maybe the more actionable thing is, the things that we are testing and discovering and trying to understand about are not limited to uh, 
you know, penetrative sexual intercourse that has proceeded in the normal way. Mm. But, you know, enjoy the ride. There is lots there to benefit from potentially. And we're trying to do some of that work to help reduce shame around those behaviors so that people feel like they have the flexibility and the freedom to do that. Cool. So have a wank every night around 9 p.m. It's <laughs> 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 my official recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. How do people support you? How do people get involved or learn more? Or They can spider out from liberoscenter.com, L-I-B-E-R-O-S center.com. Cool. Anything else? Any like final wishes or commands or thoughts or ideas that we missed? Stop shaming people about their sexual behaviors. Yeah, please, right. Please stop. Yeah, it's a big one. Make me unemployed. Stop yeah, right. shaming people. Cool. <laughs> well, sweet. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. It was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for putting the electrodes on my face. <laughs> Sorry, we couldn't get that thing going. All right, over and out. Align Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Some ways that you can support this podcast, one of which you can pick up an Align Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band. comes along with a door anchor and a carrying case and a video guide on how to mobilize those joints and integrate that body of yours. Really great stuff. You can be found at aligntherapy.com and also on amazon.com um, i wanted to thank once again health iq for supporting this podcast health iq is a life insurance company that focuses towards people that are taking care of their bodies so any type of athlete folks that are paying attention to nutrition pretty much anybody listening to this podcast uh, they focus on lowering rates for you because you deserve it you get up to 33 percent lower rates than the standard you can see if you qualify at healthiq.com slash align. That's healthiq is in the letters iq.com slash align. If you're a healthy individual and you got a family or, or some folks that you want to know that they're taken care of, if you're not around, that's the way to do it. Healthiq.com slash align. Um, thank you also so much for utilizing the Amazon affiliate link on the right-hand sidebar of the podcast page. Bookmark that thing. Anytime you purchase some crap on Amazon, purchase that crap through that link we get percentage of it costs you nothing and i think that's enough thank you guys so much for reviews on itunes thank you for listening thank you for supporting have a beautiful rest of your day Pow.